This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Monoclonal antibodies are lab synthesized and mimic our own immune system in fighting harmful pathogens. In addition to convalescent plasma and antiviral medication, monoclonal antibodies have been an important component of the treatment used to fight infections due to COVID. The use of monoclonal antibodies has been shown to shorten the duration of symptoms, as well as reduce the risk of hospitalization and mortality due to COVID-19. Today's podcast will focus on monoclonal antibodies, and our guest is Dr. Raymond Rezanabli from the Division of Infectious Disease at the Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Raymond, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Daryl, for having me. Well, let's start by maybe asking you to describe for our listeners what actually are monoclonal antibodies. Just like what you said, monoclonal antibodies are neutralizing antibodies against COVID-19. They are synthetic proteins that mimic the immune system, and they've been developed to bind to the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. By binding to the spike protein, this monoclonal antibodies neutralizes it. It prevents the virus from attaching itself to the human ACE2 receptor. And in doing so, they prevent the virus entry into the human cells and preventing subsequent infection of cells. Because they work early in the course of an infection, they have to be given as early as possible, usually within seven days of the onset of symptoms. And just like you mentioned, studies have shown that the use of this monoclonal antibodies against COVID-19 have been shown to reduce viral load, reduce the duration of symptoms, reduce the risk of progression to severe disease, thereby reducing hospitalization and death. I believe very early on in the pandemic, before we had monoclonal antibodies, I think we had convalescent plasma first. Are the antibodies from convalescent plasma any different from monoclonal antibodies or our own antibodies that we developed to fight COVID? I'm glad you mentioned that because the first monoclonal antibody that was authorized for use against COVID-19 was actually identified from the plasma of a person that has recovered from COVID-19. So in a sense, they are almost similar. The difference is that the monoclonal antibodies is just a manufactured single protein. Compare that to convalescent plasma, which is polyclonal, that has multiple proteins against COVID-19. So those are the difference between the two. So what are the goals when we use monoclonal antibodies? What are we hoping to accomplish with that? We are hoping to reduce the progression of a patient's mild symptoms into severe disease. And this has been shown all over again from the first monoclonal antibody through the last one that was authorized. The use of these antibodies early on prevents progression to severe disease, reduces mortality, as well as reducing the duration of symptoms. And how long can you find measurable titers of these antibodies in an individual who's received the monoclonal antibody? And how does that compare with the titers of antibodies that we develop should we get COVID? They generally linger for roughly about one to three months. And this is generally probably similar to the endogenously produced antibodies as well. As soon as the infection resolves, the uh, antibodies also kind of somewhat dissipate. But in contrast to the naturally acquired antibodies, 
the monoclonal antibodies do not make a comeback. In contrast, for those wherein their T cells have been primed, if there is a subsequent challenge with the virus, those T cells will do come back and produce uh, immune response to the virus in patients who have been infected in the past. Are monoclonal antibodies COVID strain specific? For example, is what we're using now the same monoclonal antibodies we would have used a year? 18 months ago? Yeah, we have learned so much from this pandemic. And we kind of expected that this will happen, that the virus will evolve and escape. And this is actually what happened, that uh, they do develop variants of concern. And many of these have developed mutations that escape existing monoclonal antibodies. The first one was bamlanivimab way back in November of 2020. And as soon as variants of concern beta and gamma came, that antibody was no longer effective. It has to be combined with atasabimab early on. And during the time that Delta came in July to December of 2021, bamblanibimab, atasabimab, imdabimab, and sotromimab were highly effective in reducing uh, progression to severe disease. But as you are alluding to, there are variants of concern that has developed mutations in their spike protein, leading to ineffectivity of many of the monoclonal antibodies that we have in the past. For example, during the Omicron surge, the only monoclonal antibody that was effective against it was sotrovimab. And that lasted for a few months because once the BA2 variant of Omicron came and surged, sotrovimab was no longer effective. And currently, we use bebtalivimab to treat patients with BA2 infections. So these antibodies have a relatively short period of usefulness. So how long does it take to develop the antibody for the current strain? That is correct. It's so unfortunate that many of these antibodies have a short therapeutic lifespan, if I may say so. It takes a while, though, to develop. That is basically the reason why we are monitoring the trends in variants of concern and encourage manufacturers to develop more antibodies against future strains if possible. This also emphasizes the need to vaccinate because the vaccine do induce polyclonal immune response, and many of them have mitigated the severe disease from subsequent variants as well. In those who've received monoclonal antibody treatments, are there any significant adverse effects that have been reported from it? It is pretty safe. One of the concerns early on was anaphylaxis, but we really have not seen that as a significant adverse effect. We may have seen one who developed an allergy during the act of infusion, but for the most part, our program has infused over 20,000 monoclonal antibodies to patients, and the side effect profile is very, very minimal, and these are generally well tolerated by patients. So who's eligible for treatment with monoclonal antibody? The authorization for use should include patients who are considered at high risk of developing disease progression. And the FDA had a list of qualifying clinical criteria that would allow the use of this monoclonal antibody products when they develop mild to moderate COVID-19. Age over 65 is a qualifying criteria. Anybody who is 12 years and older who have hypertension, cardiovascular disease, chronic lung diseases, diabetes, chronic kidney disease are eligible to receive this. 
those that have compromised immune system from the use of uh, chemotherapeutic drugs, for example, or drugs that suppresses the immune system, they do qualify, including the use of steroids. Pregnancy is also another one that is considered a high-risk category. So all pregnant women should be considered eligible for treatment with monoclonal antibodies and those that are dependent on medical devices such as tracheostomy or uh, gastric tube they do qualify to receive monoclonal antibodies if they develop COVID-19. How about women who are breastfeeding? Any issues there? And not really. Uh, we do recommend uh, that they receive it, particularly if they are within six weeks after delivery. There was a concern that maybe it gets transmitted into the breast milk. And this is okay, because these are basically just immune proteins and should not really cause harm to the baby. So it's really unrelated to the severity of symptoms. It's just that these individuals have risk of developing more severe symptoms. And thank you for pointing that out. Early on during the pandemic, we had to do a lot of education to providers as well as patients, because at that time they were waiting for the symptoms to get worse. That's not really what this is intended to treat. This is really intended to patients who are still having mild symptoms so that they do not progress into severe disease. Unfortunately, once the patient has already progressed to severe illness, including those that had required oxygen supplementation, it will be too late for the monoclonal antibodies to act. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier timing is important. And is this from the onset of symptoms, the uh, dating from the positive COVID test? How do you determine uh, when this, uh, when the timing is correct? It has to be from the onset of symptoms. And uh, this really emphasizes the need to diagnose as quickly as possible. This emphasizes to providers as well as patients that the, if they develop symptoms that is consistent with COVID, they don't wait. They have to be tested right away because the eligibility criteria for monoclonal antibodies start at the onset of symptoms, not at the time of testing. Now, am I correct that when I read this, that these are not products that are to be used as inpatient treatment, only as outpatient? And what if otherwise a patient meets their criteria? Timing is right. They have high-risk patients. Why are they not given in the hospital? They may be given in the hospital for patients who are in the hospital for non-COVID reasons. Like, for example, if patient A is in the hospital for, let's just say, a fractured hip, and during testing at entry, they happen to be tested positive, but they have mild symptoms, then they do qualify. What the EUA criteria disallows is if the patient is admitted to the hospital for COVID indication, like they have severe illness, they require oxygen supplementation, then by that time, they are no longer eligible to receive this because it's already too late. So it's important to really uh, distinguish the two. If the patient is admitted for COVID indications, then these monoclonal antibodies are not allowed. But if they are in the hospital for non-COVID indications and they otherwise meet the eligibility criteria, then uh, this may be used. And how about any use following a COVID vaccine or booster? Does that interfere at all with the uh, with giving antibody? In the past, there was a delay, but late guidance from the uh, federal authorities had allowed its use, even in vaccinated individuals, assuming that they develop COVID because the 
vaccine-induced protection is not sufficient. And we have data to show that even in vaccinated individuals, monoclonal antibodies are effective as a supplement in patients who are considered at high risk. So to summarize that point, even vaccinated and boosted individuals, if they develop COVID, then they are eligible for monoclonal antibody therapy. Okay. On the contrary, for those that have developed COVID and have gotten monoclonal antibodies, they also are eligible to get either a primary series for COVID vaccine or a booster vaccine soon after they recover from the clinical illness and as soon as they are taken out of isolation, then they can get their booster or COVID vaccination series. Okay. Now, we know that immunosuppressed patients have had less than an enthusiastic response to the vaccine. Did I read that there are now a treatment option to receive monoclonal antibody for prevention of COVID in high-risk individuals? That is correct. And this is what we call the pre-exposure prophylaxis. So just like what you mentioned, patients whose immune system are suppressed for one reason or another, and they get the vaccine, their immune response to the vaccine is suboptimal. It's not the same as a healthy individual. Because of this, there is a mechanism for them to get pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a combination of two monoclonal antibodies known as tixagimab silgavimab. And this is given to unexposed individuals with no symptoms whatsoever for COVID-19. And the injection is supposed to last for about six months. And this is really an important information to providers that this is something that is allowed for use in patients whose immune system is suppressed. And we are actively giving this to our patients at Mayo Clinic. Regarding the FDA status of monoclonal antibodies, I understand they are approved for emergency use, right? They're not fully FDA approved. That is correct. And that's a really important distinction to make. These are only authorized. That's why I actually uh, try to not use the term approve when I talk about them because they are not FDA approved. They are still considered investigational. And this is something that we inform our patients that before we give the treatment or injection, that they are aware that these remains investigational products and are only allowed for use because of this emergency authorization. In contrast to an FDA approval, the authorization will probably last for a short period of time. For example, right now, the only one that is authorized for use is bevtolizumab. The others that we used to give in the past, like sotrovimab, kazirivimab, indevimab, as well as bamlanivimab, etazevimab, they are no longer authorized, so we cannot even use them. I imagine because these have such a short period of usefulness, they may never get FDA approved. They're just not going to have the time to get that approval. Is that right? That is probably the reality of this, Daryl, that many of them will, or probably all of them will probably remain in the emergency use authorization category and may never get final approval because as variants evolve, many of these drugs that we use under this authorization will no longer be effective. Okay. And who covers the cost of this treatment? So uh, luckily, the uh, monoclonal antibody products have been purchased by the federal government and are distributed free of charge to all patients. So we do not charge for the products. However, there is a minimal fee that is charged to insurance companies for the act of infusing. 
This will cover the time for our nursing staff to put the IVs in, as well as to have patients monitored for at least an hour after the infusion. These are charged to insurance companies, but for those that are underinsured or uninsured, we basically shoulder the cost to it, so they should not worry about cost to them. And this has been our practice since we started our program. Mm-hmm. It seems that the more recent Omicron strains are less virulent than the original ones. Uh, do the same criteria hold? Are you still looking for patients who are at high risk despite the less virulent strains that we are currently seeing? That is correct. We still do. Patients that are considered at high risk are still contacted and screened for eligibility and are still offered monoclonal antibodies to this date. Just like what I said early on, even vaccinated individuals do still get COVID-19. And if they are considered a high risk for disease progression, then we give them the opportunity to get the monoclonal antibody products. And people have been receptive in general. So in addition to monoclonal antibodies, convalescent plasma, COVID vaccine, What are some of the newer agents that you have now available that have shown efficacy in treating COVID? There are three that has been either approved or authorized in the outpatient setting. The first one is remdesivir. This is the drug that's been with us for over a year now. This is the backbone of COVID treatment in the inpatient practice. Lately, it has been shown that if we give it early, Within the first seven days of illness, it also reduces the risk of disease progression and hospitalization by roughly about 85%. And because of that, it has been allowed for use in the outpatient practice, and we do have that as a program. There are two newer antiviral drugs. The first one is a combination of nirmatrelvir in combination with a pharmacologic booster called ritonavir. The combination of that is known as Paxlovid. And then the second product is molnupiravir. These products are oral antiviral pills that are given for five days to patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 with the same purpose of preventing COVID-19 progression and hospitalization. The efficacy is good for the nirmatrelvir ritonavir combination. It prevents hospitalization by as high as 85 percent or higher. In contrast, molnupiravir only has about 30 percent efficacy, and therefore molnupiravir is not the preferred drug for treatment. The downside to Paxlovid, however, is the high risk of drug-to-drug interactions. This has limited the use of this product to many high-risk patients. Well, Raymond, you've given us a lot of very useful information. Can you give us maybe two or three key points that summarize our discussion on monoclonal antibodies? Monoclonal antibodies are highly effective drugs for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 in patients that are considered at high risk, but they have to be given early. Therefore, patients need to be tested quickly and early as well so that they can avail of monoclonal antibody therapies. Unfortunately, they Therapeutic lifespan of monoclonal antibodies is relatively short, and for those that do not have options because of variants of concern, the other options includes intravenous remdesivir or oral Paxlovid, also known as nirmatrelvir-ritonavir combination, and 
least preferred is molnupiravir. Vaccination remains the mainstay for prevention. And for those that are not likely to respond optimally to vaccines, we also have a pre-exposure prophylaxis with the use of tixajevimab, silgavimab in patients who are immunocompromised. We've been discussing monoclonal antibodies with infectious disease expert, Dr. Raymond Rezonable from the Mayo Clinic. Raymond, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thanks for having me, Darren. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.